This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, March 14th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to The Guy Benson Show, live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and the Tony Snow radio studio at Fox News. Delighted to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you can't catch us live, which we do recommend, of course, but if you can't, there's a podcast for that. It is on demand. It is absolutely free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. We have a very special guest to get to here in just a moment. First, I want to bring you a Fox News alert and bring to your attention a developing story involving the crisis in Ukraine, and it hits close to home here at Fox News. The team has received an email, this was just minutes ago, from CEO Suzanne Scott, our ultimate boss here. And she wrote this letter. Dear colleagues, earlier today, our correspondent Benjamin Hall was injured while news gathering outside of Kiev in Ukraine. We have a minimal level of details right now, but Ben is hospitalized, and our teams on the ground are working to gather additional information as the situation quickly unfolds. The safety of our entire team of journalists in Ukraine and the surrounding region is our top priority and of the utmost importance. This is a stark reminder for all journalists who are putting their lives on the line every day to deliver the news from a war zone. We will update everyone as we know more. Please keep Ben and his family in your prayers. Thank you, Suzanne. That's Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott. That's all that we know right now. But our prayers are with Ben and with his family. He has been on this program before. He's been doing remarkable work on the ground in a war zone, and we hope he's okay. And I wanted to bring that to you at the very top of the show. Howie Kurtz will join us at the start of our next hour to talk about that story and more. We'll also have Dr. Manny Alvarez here, some new COVID-related stories to get to. That is in our final hour. However, for our first hour, I am very pleased to welcome in studio for the entire hour, Bill Barr, the former Attorney General of the United States. He served, of course, under President Trump, and he's out with a new book called One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. And it's big. It is a thick book. If you're watching on the live stream at foxnation.com, you can see this is not something that is quickly written. It is not something that's quickly read. But I read the whole thing because I admire the attorney general. We have gotten to know each other just a little bit in recent years. And as I said on Special Report recently, after Brett Bayer got a crack at the (laughs) attorney general in that interview, Brett asked for our reaction. I said it's one of the few memoirs, political memoirs, that I've really looked forward to in a while in this town, and it did not disappoint. Before I get to the Attorney General, just to put my cards on the table, something that we have lamented on this show for years now is a problem that we have in our politics 
that this is not an original thought on my part, but the term is an unreliable narrator problem where you have people in power who are not reliable narrators, fill in the blank who that might be, presidents current and past. You also have the news media whose job it is to be a reliable narrator. And in many, many cases, they or even we are not. For what it's worth, in my opinion, Bill Barr is a reliable narrator, which is why I think this book is important. And I will get into what I mean by that here in the question and answer back and forth. But he's a serious person. I will admit, though, I did laugh out loud a few times reading the book, including (laughs) yesterday on the flight. People were looking at me. There are some really great anecdotes in there. Mr. Attorney General, it is great to see you. Welcome in. Thank you, Guy. It's great to be here. I want to start, as silly as it might sound, with the title, One Damn Thing After Another. It is a perfect title. It's fitting for you and your personality. It's fitting for the moment and the era in which you served. But it comes from an attorney general of many years past. Briefly explain that story, if you would. Yes. So when Ronald Reagan asked William French Smith to be his attorney general, Smith went to his uh, the, the last Republican attorney general that preceded him, Ed Levy, who was a uh, professor at the law school in Chicago and eventually head of the University of Chicago. So he was an academic and he used to wear bow ties and puff a pipe, very much the part. And William French Smith said, uh, so tell me about the position of attorney general. And he was expecting to get a long lecture about the rule of law and the unique role of the attorney general. And Levy puffed on his pipe, took it out of his mouth and said, it's one damn thing after another. (laughs) And from then on, attorneys general have always said to each other, that's what the job is, one damn thing after another. I have a feeling that mine was probably more that way than, well, that, <laughs> than most. That was my thought, right? Uh, Levy died years ago, but I yeah. wonder – you could go back and tell him, sir, you have no idea because reading this book, it's pretty extraordinary. When I am really enjoying a hard copy book I and preparing for an interview, I will make notes in the mm-hmm, margin mm-hmm. That, and occasionally I will just – draw an exclamation point on a page where Mm -hmm. I have that kind of a moment. The first exclamation point I wrote in the margin of your book was when you tell the story of how your wife found out that you were going to be Attorney General of the United States. We're skipping way ahead here, your childhood, your education, some very important roles in the Justice Department, Mm -hmm. but under President George H.W. Bush, you're going to become Attorney General. Big deal. You're a young guy for that huge position. She didn't know until? Until it was announced on the radio after I had been announced in the Rose Garden. Uh, I was 41. I had been the deputy for uh, Dick Thornburg, a former governor of uh, Pennsylvania. And he went to run for the Senate and uh, the president called me into the Oval Office and said, uh, I'm going to make you attorney general. And uh, – See if you can reach your wife, but I'd like to do it in the next half hour out in the Rose Garden because we were having a ceremony out there. And I, those were not the days we had cell phones, so uh, she heard about it. On the <laughs> well, car radio. In the car radio. Like I feel like you got to keep your hands at 10 and 2 at that point. <laughs> right. Stay on the road when you hear that. It's like – and you can't even rewind it, right? It's like, right. did I just hear that correctly? <laughs> That's, right. That's how your wife found out this huge career move had occurred for you. Yes. Now, the Bush era, because you were attorney general during – Bush 41. Yes. And there are some amazing stories in this book that we, mm-hmm. we don't have time to get into, right. but bringing Noriega to justice, mm-hmm. a guarantee that you made 
to a president of the United States, which is kind of a, a ballsy thing, but uh, you followed through on that guarantee. Uh, the hostage situation at a prison involving foreign nationals who were being right. housed there and the resolution to sort of like Hollywood-level yeah. rescue story, yeah. uh, the colossal mistake that you call a Supreme Court nomination by President Bush. There's There's a lot of major history in there, but I want to focus at least for the remainder of this segment on really the heart and soul of the job that you had, which was prosecuting crime. This is a very hot issue once again in the United States. Right. Crime is on the rise. It was a real scourge at that time. Yes. You helped implement certain policies that you write literally reduced criminals, including hardened gang members, to tears. That's right. Talk about what you did in the 90s and then what you guys tried to do under the Trump administration as well with Relentless Pursuit and Operation Legend. Right. And where we are now, because Americans are on edge, I think, for good reason. Right. Well, uh, crime peaked in the United States in 91-92 when I was attorney general, my last year as attorney general under Bush. And it had been going up. Uh, it had almost quintupled since 1960. It had just soared. And at that time, all the states had these revolving door systems of justice. The incarceration rates were actually going down as crime skyrocketed. And uh, up until that time, the federal government had a very limited role to play in violent crime. But what I suggested uh, to first to Dick Thornburg and eventually to the president was that we lean forward and we use our tough federal laws, our gun laws, our gang laws, our RICO statutes, uh, and our drug laws for narcotics operations to go after the main violent people uh, in communities and to work with the locals on identifying them and then putting them in the federal system where they'd really get some stiff time. The story you're referring to happened with an anti-gang task force in Philadelphia. The uh, Philadelphia had, again, a revolving door system and the, when the when the kids were arrested or the, the gang members were arrested, they'd be out on the street the next day. People wouldn't provide information. They were terrorized by them. And uh, we went in there with this program and we swept up hundreds of gang members and one operation in particular, they were being marched through the neighborhood back to where the uh, they would be taken in, in the vans. And they were laughing and smug and because they thought this was going to be business as usual. They'd be back out there. And then when they saw that they were being taken federally in, in federal wagons, uh, one of them started crying and banging his head against the van. And I said, you know, we have a federal criminal justice system that reduces these criminals to tears. We need 50 of those systems in this country. Every state, their system should be just as tough as the federal system. And so what we did was – we leaned forward and we and we used our federal laws to incapacitate the most violent working with the locals. But we also pushed the states to reform their system. And for 22 years from that point forward, if you look at a chart of crime in the U.S., it hit a stone wall in 1992. And it went down for 22 consecutive years. It was cut in half. And it only started going up again under Obama when people started going back to the revolving door system of justice and demonized the police. Uh, and that, of course, really got worse toward the tail end of your second stint under Trump because of right. the George Floyd riots and all of that. And as I was reading 
about these initiatives, both Trump era and Bush era, one of the concerns I had, and, and you addressed it a bit in the Trump era, of course, was a key element is working with the locals, as you right. call them, mm-hmm. at the federal level. Is that borderline impossible if you have the top prosecutors at the local level who are committed to being in some ways pro-criminal, which is what we're seeing right now? Right. So you know, when COVID hit, even before COVID, crime had started going back up. Uh, around, uh, in the cities, in some big cities, because of these social justice DAs and the weakening of the state criminal justice system. We went into a number under uh, Operation Legend, uh, named after a little kid who was killed while he was sleeping in Kansas City. We went into uh, eight uh, cities uh, to work with the state and local to try to push crime down. Some of those cities had good prosecutors, and that was one of the reasons we were there. But we did go into some cities that were broken, like Chicago. The president wanted us to go into Chicago. And I told him the local the, the, the police were good, and the chief of police I liked there, but uh, a guy named Brown who had come up from Dallas. But uh, the prosecutors were not really prosecuting the crimes. But we did our best. Uh, to help them out. Bill Barr is my guest, former attorney general of the United States. His new book is One Damn Thing After Another. Let's get to Russiagate and the Trump era in earnest when we return. We have him for the full hour here live in studio. It's the Guy Benson Show. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'm Guy Benson. On The Guy Benson Show with me in studio live is former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr. His new book is One Damn Thing After Another. And you are, throughout this book, extremely critical of the news media. And you give some examples from your time under Bush 41 and then, of course, under Trump. And I wonder if you can pinpoint for us what you think the most unfair thing you can recall the media doing to both of your bosses at the presidential level, Bush and then Trump? Well, Bush, uh, they, they brought Bush down. Uh, Bush, Bush, after the Gulf War in March of uh, 1991, was at 89% approval rating. And through a combination of a big lie, sort of like Russiagate, the idea was that he had secretly armed Iraq and therefore doesn't deserve any credit for that victory. That was completely bogus, total lie, uh, and was proven to be uh, eventually. Uh, then they also presented him as out of touch, that he didn't, that he had never seen a scanner in a supermarket. Again, a total lie. The video shows that he well understood what a scanner was and he was remarking at the specific technology. Right, new technology. A new technology. And then uh, the third uh, was the idea that we were in the deepest and darkest recession even though that was 19 months of consecutive month-by-month uh, month economic growth. And, and uh, in November after the election, the press went from 90 to 90-10 on, 
bad news on the economy and immediately turned around. Uh, so it was oh, good their, news. Their yeah. guy, Bill Clinton, by that point, yeah, was elected and, president. Right. And even though he wasn't president, he started getting the credit for the turnaround. So, I mean, that was uh, – I don't remember that stuff. Yeah. I was very young and that was bad. But you write in the book, it has only gotten worse. Yes. And that brings us to the present day. What was the most unfair thing you saw? Well, it was obvious – well, it was Russiagate. I mean, Russiagate was a, was a monstrous big lie. Uh, and it's had a lot of uh, other it, – it hobbled the administration. It deprived a duly elected president of being able to uh, run a uh, – you know, his, his uh, branch of government and execute on the policies he had promised to deliver and uh, kept, kept them on the defensive for over two years. But it had other ramifications. It fundamentally – prevented the United States from uh, a normal foreign policy engagement with Russia uh, and uh, you know, trying to find some kind of modus vivendi with Russia. I mean maybe it would have been possible to avoid the current circumstance. I don't know. But President Trump was unable to follow normal diplomacy with Russia because of it. We will get to more on Russiagate in the next segment. Quickly here, you had no intention of going back into government. Right. Your wife – half-jokingly said she would divorce you if you did. Right. But then you did. I did. Because you felt an obligation. You talked about the process of how that happened and bring mm-hmm. your family on board. During the confirmation process, you mentioned two U.S. senators who refused to even meet with you, almost acknowledge your existence during your confirmation process. You had been unanimously confirmed previous time in the 90s. One of those two senators is now vice president, That's Kamala right. Harris. Just right. your reflection on that, that she wouldn't even meet with you at the time as a senator. What does that say in your mind? What did it tell you about her? Well, that, that she's hyper-partisan uh, and, and, and is not a fair-minded person. There were Democratic senators at the time who voted against you but were secretly, at least you know, behind closed doors in Washington – Happy yes. that you were the nominee. Yes. Is is that a weird thing to, <laughs> to have people privately telling you we're glad it's you, but we're voting no? It's a little weird, but it shows the malady uh, at work these days, which is a lack of courage uh, and the fact that – and this is true in both parties to some extent. You know, Politicians who want to hold their job, they're worried about getting challenged from their from, – uh, in the Democrats' case from the left flank and the Republican from the right flank. So they spend all their time worried about people who are more extreme than them are. They are challenging them and taking extreme (laughs) – you know, not wanting to offend the extremists in the party. And it's come a long way. I guess it's devolved quickly in our politics. You got 100 Senate votes in the 90s, three Democrats this time out. Right. I was unanimously confirmed for three different positions under President Bush. And then not so much under Trump. And then (laughs) the fun began. And we will talk about Russiagate. We'll talk about the election controversies, your sparring with the president, and other non-Trump related things as well with Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General, on The Guy Benson Show, talking about his new book, One Damn Thing After Another. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here live on the Guy Benson Show. Our guest is Bill Barr, former United States Attorney General under President Trump. His book and President George H.W. Bush, I'll add. His book is One Damn Thing After Another. Let's talk about the Trump administration, Mr. Attorney General, and Russiagate in particular. You said it was the most unfair thing done to Trump, perpetrated by many people, but including the media, very much involved, very invested in that. Mm -hmm. One thing that strikes me, reading the book, and just before the book, just following your second stint as attorney general, was a lot of the decisions that you made on important, significant, let's say politically sensitive matters felt kind of like a lose-lose for you. Because if you did something that President Trump wasn't going to like, he would let the whole world know about it. And you had an irate president sometimes picking up the phone and screaming at you or bringing you into the office and yelling at you. And you would get basically no credit for it, bank no credit with your critics and the media and the Democrats. Then if you made decisions on other matters that Trump was happy about, it was like a constitutional crisis, right? People running around with their hair on fire saying that you're just a lackey doing Trump's bidding. And this was a familiar phenomenon over and over again. One element that really frustrated Trump was decisions that you made, prudential decisions as attorney general, not to prosecute or charge certain people, like Jim Comey, for example. You say that was not a close call, in your opinion. Andrew McCabe, his deputy, did lie under penalty of perjury on multiple occasions. I know many conservatives that I speak to were frustrated that he didn't really face consequences. Why was McCabe not charged? Well, I can't get in you know, to those to those uh, specific reasons, but uh, you know, the, there were there were good reasons why we were not able to proceed with that case. Um, I, you know, a, a well-known politician came to me after I was Attorney General the first time under Bush and said that he was thinking of going in to be Attorney General under W. And what did I think? And I said, you, you still have political ambitions. You'd be crazy to do it. Because as attorney general, you only spend political capital. You don't make it. If you go in trying to win approval from people, you will fail. You have to be willing to make the decision knowing that people are going to be unhappy. And furthermore, of not being able to explain your decision publicly because these proceedings are usually confidential and protected by law. So uh, you, you, you by definition have to take a lot of guff. And the president didn't like some of the calls. I, and now with Comey, it had to do with his four memos and whether he had willingly disclosed classified information. Uh, and I had to uh, make these calls based on the recommendation uh, of the prosecutors and the evidence that we had and what the standards are. There are standards of when the department brings an indictment. We have to feel we have proof beyond a reasonable doubt to establish the – And you didn't. We didn't. And you didn't. It was so. that simple and – uh, I wasn't going to bend the rules just because someone was the enemy of the president. Uh, but by the same token, cases were brought to me. I don't control what cases percolate up to me uh, and frequently you know, the, the difficult decisions are brought to me <clears throat> and – or brought to the top. 
And uh, you had these two line pros or some line prosecutors, two of whom worked for for Mueller, who wanted to uh, impose like a seven to nine year penalty on Roger Stone. Right. You talk about that whole right. experience yeah. as well, and you said that's also not fair. Right. And you were ripped apart on the left for that decision, right. and you explain how you reached that conclusion right. as well in the book. And the, the judge, you know, agreed with yeah, you. Yeah. Right. Uh, so. You were just sitting prior to our interview in our green room here at yeah. the Fox News Bureau, and it is named after our late great colleague Charles Krauthammer, yes. who coined the term Bush derangement syndrome. <laughs> there was a lot of Trump derangement syndrome out there for sure, still is. Yes. I came around to the view that there was also Barr derangement syndrome, and I came to that conclusion when you put out your memo summarizing the top-line conclusions of the Mueller report. And people absolutely lost their minds. Right. And then we read the report, what, a few weeks later, and it was absolutely accurate. And to this day, it is an article of faith in the mainstream media and on the left that you misled the country, if not outright lied about what Mueller said. I, I don't understand how sentient, literate people can believe that. I know that Mueller kind of put out that weird letters right. feeding into that. Yes. My theory of the case, and I'd like your reaction, is these people were so invested on Trump being guilty that the facts made them very upset and very angry that they didn't lead to the conclusion, to the outcome that they were rooting for. And so they just pounded the table and you were the scapegoat. I, I can't think of any logical reason why that moment resulted in this torrent of criticism about something that was accurate. I mean, I'm, right. to this day, I don't it, get it. it. It is a mystery, but I agree. Uh, they wanted – they thought that Russiagate was going to knock Trump out of office and they thought that uh, – Mueller was going to be the instrument of that and they were very angry that there was a no collusion finding and also that he punted on the issue of obstruction and they had a tantrum. And as you know, I had asked Mueller to give me the report so I could put it out quickly. He didn't and which meant there was going to be weeks delay of of redaction. He agreed to it. He agreed to it and then didn't do it. He didn't do it. So when I got the report, we're talking about a two or three week period. Where, I, where, where we couldn't put out the report. The feeding frenzy. And, and in fact, that Friday, people were saying, oh, uh, if, unless the Justice Department puts it right out, it must mean that he's a criminal and the, you know, he's going to jail. going or, to jail and so forth. And the stock market would be affected. Our foreign policy would be affected. So I had to at least give the bottom line. And as you say, no one was, no one was misled. I accurately said that he did not exonerate uh, the president. You even included that yeah, I, I include weird line that, of theirs, right? And I included that weird line, uh, and then and I in my book I go over the headlines of the next day, which were clearly not misled. They said, you know, uh, there was no collusion, but the story is more complicated on obstruction. Barr says he's not exonerated, and so forth. So you know, I it it was a tantrum. It was a tantrum. Are you surprised that John Durham's investigation is still going? No, not really because uh, see, people have to understand that he didn't get the, the IG's report on Crossfire Hurricane until December of 2019 uh, and 
so he he came in 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 uh, really got going April May time frame, but was focused on sort of little bunny trails that we had to clean up while we waited for the IG's report to be finished. So at the end of 2019, he gets the IG's report, which is all about the Inspector FBI, General, the Inspector General, all about the FBI and 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 the spying and so forth. And he gets to work on that. And then three months later, we have COVID. The grand juries across the country are shut down. So that delayed a lot of things. Plus, he's looking in the term that you've used in interviews is his job, Durham, his task with the full waterfront of how we got to this whole Russia right. insanity to begin with. So there's a lot to chase down. You have been insistent, as you were just there, that the Trump campaign was spied upon. Right. It seems like more evidence has emerged of that recently. Yep. Just to give a sense of why the, the book title is so apropos, one damn thing after another. You write that on July 24th, Mueller testifies before Congress, 2019. He did not do well, in my view. It was clear. It landed with a thud. This thing's over. Right. You guys clink glasses at the <laughs> DOJ that night. Finally, we're freaking done with this stuff. The next day was the Zelensky phone call. That's right. And off to the races on the first impeachment. Wild. <laughs> not not the second impeachment, which I, which I want to get to here. Right. 2020 election, you insist and you make the case that Trump beat himself. Um, and you talk about how you try to intercede with the president from time to time and say, hey, you know, you really ought to consider this. Often it fell on deaf ears. You walked out of a gathering watching the first presidential debate. You were so frustrated and disgusted by the way that was going. Ultimately, what happened happened. Trump lost the election. A lot of people have asked you, because your relationship with the president became frayed toward the end, Yes, famously. Um, you've come on a lot of different shows, TV, radio, et cetera. People ask you all about January 6th, President Trump, 2024. You've talked about you know what you might consider doing in 2024. I guess the question that I have for you, and I'm just going to this portion of the book. So let's see, page 548, you talk about the president not appreciating the reality of the situation of the election. Mm -hmm. Page 551, you talk about, I'll just quote, after the election, he, Trump, was beyond restraint. He would only listen to a few sycophants who told him what he wanted to hear. Reasoning with him was hopeless. Uh, skipping ahead just a couple of pages, 557, you say that the treatment of the president, of the then vice president, Mike Pence, was despicable. It's a very strong word. And you even put out a statement just after January 6th, saying that this was a betrayal of his office, his office, Trump's office. And yet you have said that if he were the nominee for the party again in 2024, you would support him because of all the problems that you have with the left. And I think you and I agree on almost every point about how this administration is a disaster. But there is sort of a, a fitness for office question. And some of the stuff that you write, really tough stuff about the way that he behaved in his psychology, people have wondered, how is that not disqualifying in your mind, having been on the inside? How would you answer that question? Why is that stuff in your mind not disqualifying? Well, he, he as I've said, his, his, some of his traits that are bad, like his impulsiveness, also had a good side to them. And it, it added to the decisiveness and the, and the dynamism of the administration. And as long as there were people around cabinet secretaries and White House staff who could you know, prevent him from you know, taking things too far or, or 
going off in some cockamamie direction, things were pretty much on track. And up until the election, I was fairly satisfied with the record. I thought it was a successful administration. In well, even when you resigned in your letter, yes. you listed accomplishments and he told you, this is the best list of accomplishments that I've seen right. summarized. And yeah. you're like under your breath, maybe we should have run on this and not all this other craziness. Oh, right. Uh, and uh, I, I think that he was shocked by he, – he persuaded himself that he was going to win at the end because of the size of the crowds. I don't know what was going on in his mind. But you know, there were people who were very forcefully uh, presenting the idea that he had uh, – that you know, there had been fraud. And I think that he made a, a shameful mistake, which is to encourage this mob to go up to Capitol Hill in order – with this crazy idea that it could be turned around somehow. Well, he January. believed that he had won. At least for a while, you said he believed that he was going to serve another term. That's that what he, he – that's how he appeared to me. I mean I, that yeah, seems yeah. like a, a disconnect from the reality though. Well, yeah. I don't know what was going on, You know whether, whether – uh, you know, he really believed it or not. I really can't say. But uh, there were a lot of people telling him that and that it was stolen and, and uh, you know, he persuaded himself that there was some opportunity to try to turn that around. I – if – if and, and as I said, I will support somebody else for the nomination and, and do what I can because I think it's a great opportunity for the Republican Party to really have a transforming election. But if he's the nominee, I, it, it's hard for me to conceive that I would not vote for the Republican nominee uh, if it meant – if the alternative was a, was a Democrat that was under the control of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think uh, I'd weigh all the relative risks and it would be uh, a choice between two very unsatisfactory options. Uh, but I would – in the case of uh, Trump – in another term, I would have to count ultimately on the people who are around him in the cabinet uh, and on the staff to uh, make sure that he stays on track. No round three for you? No way. At Main Justice? <laughs> no way. <laughs> One of the people that comes up in the book a number of times, another cabinet secretary under President Trump that you seem to have a great amount of respect and affection for is someone that I know a little bit as well, Secretary Pompeo. Yes. There's no real secret that he is – thinking about running for president. Um, he has not ruled out even challenging President Trump in a primary potentially. Is he someone that you could envision supporting in a Republican primary for president? Yes. I've had a long associate – not a long, but I mean I've uh, – when he was director of the CIA, I was on his external advisory board and then he was a colleague in the cabinet. And I have tremendous respect for him and given the dangers around the world – you know, he'd be a very formidable candidate for president, and and someone who I think would make a great president. And I think that's one of the things that I'm uh, concerned about with Trump is that uh, we have a great uh, stable of excellent people that could be president. Uh, Pompeo is one, but there are others too, senators and governors and so forth. And it's time to give one of them a chance. Very quickly before this break. There's so much drama. There's so much rancor. There is also a lot of success in the Trump administration. On balance, looking back, you didn't want the job. You finally decided that you would accept the job. Are you glad that you did? I, I wouldn't say I, I, I was glad that I did. It's always an honor to serve the country and I'm glad in that respect. 
Uh, Do you regret taking the job? No, I don't regret taking the job. Uh, I, I was very disappointed because I think the president, because uh, uh, of his inability to control himself, uh, uh, blew the election. He could have won that election and he didn't and a lot was riding on it. Uh, but I also – when I look back, we accomplished a lot. And I had the opportunity of uh, working with some fantastic people at the department and in the administration. And I don't regret that experience. Bill Barr, my guest here in studio, One Damn Thing After Another is the book. It's a bestseller. And we will wrap things up. One more segment with the Attorney General when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show, One Damn Thing After Another, the new book by two-time U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr, who joins me in the studio. He's been here the whole hour. We only have a few minutes left, so quickly to conclude, your family must be delighted and relieved that this is all over. What is your uh, happiest indulgence now that you're out of public life and all this craziness, or at least out of office, where you can go back to something that you really enjoy and relax doing? Well, I'm going to brush up on my bagpiping. You know, that's something I've done since I was eight. That was years going to be old. my last question. I had a bab- <laughs> I had a bagpipe question. Right. I swear, it's written down right here. Yeah. So go on. Yeah. So since I was eight, I've played, and and I'm going to uh, get back into it. And uh, now that I have the leisure time to do that, uh, and I go hunting. Uh, two of my daughters like shooting with me. So uh, you have in the middle of the book. A lot of photographs, right, with yeah. you and various uh, you know, important people, and I was hoping that because you have a, a do you have a piping yes. photo of yourself bagpiping at thirteen years back old back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I almost got the sense, given the number of times you mentioned bagpiping in this book, that if you had your druthers, you bagpiping would have been on the cover of this book. That's like that's a, true. That's how, true. Quickly, how did you get into that? I just love the sound, and that's one of the interesting things about it. I. Uh, my father bought a record, and I heard it. And I just, I, I was like, mesmerized. I, 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 I need that. to do that. I need to do that, and I've loved it ever since. So. Well, maybe we can do a live performance <laughs> on the air one of these days. <laughs> okay. Bill Barr was the Attorney General under two presidents here in the United States of America. Most recently, of course, President Trump. His new best-selling book, "One Damn Thing After Another." Mr. Attorney General, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Guy. Another hour coming up. Howie Kurtz, straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free of charge every day. On demand if you cannot listen as we air between 3 and 6 Eastern. You can also follow us for all the comings and goings and guests coming up and links to various interviews. You can follow us on social, which we do recommend, at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter. That's also Instagram. On my personal feed, it's at Guy P. Benson. As we get going here in our second hour, Fox News alert. The Dow... Rallies a bit at the end of the day to finish up a single point, closing up one to 32,945. I think it's fair to call that a flat day on Wall Street. 
We will get to our next guest here in just a moment, but we will bring you another Fox News alert. As we did at the top of the show, if you did not hear it last hour, we had former Attorney General Bill Barr in here for the entire hour, but we opened with this, and we're going to repeat it now. There was an email sent out uh, within the last 90 minutes or so from the CEO of Fox News, Suzanne Scott, and here's what she wrote to our team. Dear colleagues, earlier today, our correspondent Benjamin Hall was injured while news gathering outside of Kiev in Ukraine. We have a minimal level of details right now, but Ben is hospitalized, and our teams on the ground are working to gather additional information as the situation quickly unfolds. The safety of our entire team of journalists in Ukraine and the surrounding regions is our top priority and of the utmost importance. This is a stark reminder for all journalists who are putting their lives on the line every day to deliver the news from a war zone. We will update everyone as soon as we know more. Please keep Ben and his family in your prayers. Thank you, Suzanne. That from the desk in the office of Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott. And I can tell you as we enter this middle hour of the show, that is all we know here. We don't have any update on Ben's condition. Aside from the fact that he was injured over there, there's rumors, there's speculation. We're not going to get into any of that. We want to follow the facts about something like this. He's a colleague. He's extremely well-respected here. He's been doing good and important work on the ground. Uh, he's... If you're trying to picture him, he's on the younger side, dark hair, British accent, handsome guy, uh, and he's been doing round-the-clock work, as have so many of our colleagues over there covering this war, and he's in the hospital. And that's all we know right now. And if you are so inclined, prayers for him, for his physical well-being, for his recovery, whatever the wounds might be or the injuries might be. And for his family, it has to be a really tough time for them. Uh, Now would be the time. And joining us now here in studio is Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern time. I was on his panel just yesterday. He also has the hit podcast Media Buzz Meter. And Howie, this is not the type of story that I ever want to have you on to talk about any journalist in trouble physically, but a member, a valued member of our Fox News team here. Details, again, very scant, but this is this is frightening. It's also sobering. It's sobering. It's chilling. It's a reminder for all these people, many of our Fox News correspondents in Ukraine, Trey Yingst, Lucas Tomlinson, Ben Hall, there's been Steve Harrigan, Mike Tobin. I mean, they're all putting their lives on the line. They're all going into a war zone without the protection of some U.S. military division, which obviously isn't in Iraq, to bring us the story of whether it's refugees or the latest Russian bombing. And You know, journalism has a pretty bad reputation these days, but this is the best of journalism. And as you also know from being on Media Buzz yesterday, about two hours before airtime, I found out about an unconfirmed report that unfortunately turned out to be true involving Brent Renaud, who was killed, shot and killed after going to a Russian checkpoint uh, and uh, identifying himself as press. And he was doing a story on refugees, award-winning American filmmaker who was on assignment for time. Uh, has previously worked for the New York Times, HBO, has won all of these major awards, and he was doing what he loved to do. But, of course, he knew as well that he was putting himself in danger. I think for a lot of Americans, there are frustrations, and I think a lot of the frustrations are warranted and well-earned when it comes to the news media. There's a lot of mistrust. Again, too much of that, in my estimation, well-earned. 
they might see this, and I think most of our viewers and listeners are absolutely concerned on behalf of Benjamin Hall and his family. They don't want anyone to get hurt. They're also thinking, well, there are soldiers getting killed every day. There are civilians getting bombed every day. Is it insular of the media to give so much attention to one journalist killed in action, if you will, or killed in the line of duty? And here we are, of course, concerned about our colleague. Through the prism of your eyes, who's been in the journalism realm for your whole career for many years, why does it matter to the world, to the truth, to freedom, even if we have a broken and imperfect profession? Why does journalism matter and why is it appropriate to focus on attacks against journalists, whether well, it's in a you know, battlefield or, or you know, violent attacks of other varieties? Well, I would be the first to say that uh, we in the news business you know, sometimes play up these stories because it's somebody we know, somebody we sympathize and all of that. But in, in Ukraine, which is just you know, totally a wild west now, the civilians there – uh, two and a half million who have gotten out or are trying to get out. People, you know, you see the hospital being bombed. You see the apartment buildings being bombed. Even while Putin continues his lies about not targeting civilians, which is a complete and utter travesty, as the whole world, except those in the state-controlled media land of Russia, uh, realize, uh, they don't have any choice. Soldiers, in many cases, don't have any choice. Journalists have a choice. You don't have to raise your hand and say, I'm going to go into a war zone. I don't think that that means they should get more attention than our brave soldiers, our men and women in the armed forces. But I think that without them, if fewer of them were doing this, and this is true of the other networks as well. I admire the work of Richard Engel and Clarissa Ward at CNN and and others who I have known and watched over the years. They're just absolutely amazing. They have empathy. Uh, And and because – the Putin's brutal tactics and the bloodshed in the streets and the way in which, you know, he even lies about uh, pregnant, the pregnant mom and baby who died because he decided it was okay to bomb a hospital. Right, the, the journalists Russians on, pretended that was a, a, yeah, an actress. crisis actress. I mean, it's just mind-blowing guy. Um, the journalists are there to be our eyes and ears so that we understand what's going on so we can make informed decisions as a country. And that's why, uh, personally, I have great admiration for the people who are doing this. Talk about the news media's coverage of a war in the era of ubiquitous social media. Because, you know, for centuries, it was word of mouth and then written communication. And even, I mean, World War II, there massive censorship, right? Even in free countries saying mm-hmm. the war effort matters more, the barriers to censorship have broken down. Over time, and there's an argument that there's maybe a downside to that. There's clearly an upside to that as well. Then you get into the modern era of television and cable news around the clock, more transparency than ever, but still more controlled. Now it's point, click, phone, Twitter, and it's everywhere. Is that more transparency? Is that better when it comes to getting a handle of what's really happening somewhere? Or is it worse because it's unfiltered, out of context? And sometimes, you know, people don't know what to believe. How do you come down on that question? Because it's a, it's a thorny one. Yeah, you know, uh, Vietnam was called the first living room war. But I remember the late NBC anchor John Chancellor telling me they had to fly the film on a helicopter to London to process it so they could air it to viewers the same day. Well, now everything happens instantly. Now, on the one hand, this is the TikTok war. And some brave uh, citizens and activists in Ukraine are using their phones to show us the images of civilian casualties and Russian atrocities. You can't necessarily believe everything because it hasn't been vetted. Some 
sometimes it has been found to be misinformation or old footage right. or whatever. But at the same time, the, the use of the, these technological tools has enabled journalists who do have standards, who do try to vet things, uh, to share with the world in real time. I mean, Zelensky does it too, by the way, and very masterfully, to share with the world in real time what is going on there in a way that if you're just quoting sources and you don't see the smoke uh, emanating from this apartment building and people trying to get out, uh, it, it doesn't quite bring it home. And I think Russia, uh, which clearly has been surprised by the ferocity of the defense of the Ukrainian people, is totally losing the PR war here as well it should. Uh, and I think technology is a key part of that. Something that we touched on on your show yesterday was a moment where there really isn't, and I'll, I'll just say this, there really isn't another reasonable or acceptable side to this conflict. In many of the stories that you cover and I cover here, there are multiple sides and there's different arguments. And sometimes it's two sides. Sometimes it's more than that. And you get into the nuance or sometimes you don't. It's very tribal. In this case, I think the facts and and you can you can around the margins talk about certain things. But the the fundamental facts of this war are so lopsided and so one sided that there isn't really uh, a need for, I would say, almost synthetic balance where people are saying, oh, well, we have to get the other side. Just the facts speak for themselves. What do you make of that from a journalistic standpoint? Because I saw Wall Street Journal just had a poll last week. Putin's approval rating was 4%. And my reaction was, who are these 4%? (laughs) Well, 90% of Americans had an unfavorable view of Putin. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure 90% of Americans would agree what the first letter of the alphabet is, right? (laughs) And yet 90% of Americans see what's happening here. I will sometimes hear from certain folks saying, you're too credulous on the Ukraine side. You're, You're too supportive. What about these things? I'm very open with the audience. I'm rooting for Ukraine. I'm rooting against Russia for various reasons. But also, even if I were had less of a rooting interest for my based on my own opinion, just the facts are what they are here. This is not the Iran-Iraq war, and this is not the fog of war. You have one country, which is a flawed democracy, uh, that was essentially minding its own business, an unprovoked, vicious, brutal assault by a much larger country with a much larger military. And all, you know, while certainly, you know, maybe it's possible Ukrainian officials exaggerate how many Russians have been killed and that sort of thing. And certainly there ought to be skepticism about U.S. government declarations about certain controversial things, given the history that that our government has not always been right. But basically you have all, most of the damage being inflicted uh, from Russian missiles missiles and long-range bombers and and tanks and so forth uh, against people who have not gotten the appropriate weaponry to respond and are barely trying to survive. Two and a half million refugees going to places like Poland. They're promised safe evacuations and then the roots are shelled. So there isn't really much of another side here because it is such a one-sided conflict that, by the way, all the U.S. intelligence brilliant experts said this will be over in days. And it hasn't been over in days because of the bravery and tenacity of the Ukrainian people. It's a tribute to them and to their leadership, that's for sure. There's no justification for the invasion, right? Sometimes in war you can say, well, this side has these grievances. Mm -hmm. This side says this. There's some truth here or there. This is like, in my view, like a 98% to 2% argument about is this war justified. 98% of me says – probably higher than that, says it is not justified. And, I mean, that is what it is, Howie, from my perspective. And I think it is beyond dispute if Russia said, okay, we're done, 
We're going to head back to our own borders. All of our people are gone. The shelling stops. You would have peace. The killing would end. The sanctions would probably come off, and we would go back to life. That, I mean, that also indicates that this is almost all exclusively on Moscow, the Kremlin, and ultimately Putin. And Putin not wanting to give up his dreams of reassembling the Soviet empire. So he makes up these reasons about neo-Nazis in the government, ludicrous country with a Jewish president. But look, I mean, there have been uh, wars the U.S. has been involved with where there have been civilian casualties and sometimes a cruise missile uh, uh, doesn't find the right target and a family Accidents. is killed. And usually there is an apology from the U.S. government or there is an investigation of whether our side committed war crimes. Now, look at this. Journalists killed by Putin's forces, you don't see Moscow apologizing. Uh, a maternity hospital hit, you not only do they not well, apologize, they make up this phony story. Lavrov, their foreign minister, said the other day, we didn't attack Ukraine. I right. mean, it's just a it's not a war. It's a peacekeeping mission. I mean, if you are uh, in Russia where Facebook's been blocked, where journalists, including Western journalists, can go to jail for 15 years for just doing anything other than official propaganda, maybe you believe some of what Putin says. I'm not sure everybody there does believe it. They think there's opposition there. But for the rest of the world, uh, I don't think so. And that's why it is as one-sided as you say. Pivoting quickly, about a minute and a half left, a story that you covered a bit. Uh, I wanted to raise it here, a Rolling Stone story about CNN. Those contretemps continue and the fallout from the scandal starting at the top. One of the top executives who's now left the network or resigned from the network who had connections to the Cuomos and had worked for Cuomo then was at CNN. We knew about the coaching mm-hmm. and the special bookings and all of that during COVID. More is now emerging from emails and text messages where she was basically, by her own admission, acting almost as Governor Cuomo's press secretary while an executive at CNN while they were praying about being the facts first network. You know, this is... It's in black and white. It's pretty ugly for them. Yeah. At the very least, way too much of a cozy relationship between the top executives at a news network and the Democratic governor of New York. This is Allison Gallus, who had worked for Andrew Cuomo, uh, who was fired along with Jeff Zucker. And the, the company now says they, they crossed ethical lines. Some of it, I don't know, could just be written off as friendly banter. Their PR person says, oh, they're trying to insinuate that Allison Gallus had some kind of sexual relationship with Andrew Cuomo. I certainly don't read it that way. Yeah. But when she is congratulating him, on, you know, Cuomo won and Trump lost after some CNN interview. Uh, I I don't have a problem with reaching out to politicians trying to book them or say, hey, this is what so-and-so wants to talk about. But the accumulation of detail in this Rolling Stone piece, which I haven't seen any of this denied, uh, suggests a news network that had lost its way. I think the biggest damage Jeff Zucker did was to turn it into an anti-Trump, totally liberal news network. We'll see whether his successor, Chris Licht, uh, can steer it back more toward being a real news network. Uh, New leadership with their work cut out for them over there. No doubt about that. And I think what graded on me the most and has throughout this whole episode at CNN for years now is the high horse uh, sort of superiority complex about the news and stuff. Most trusted name in news. And that's been uh, degraded significantly based on these revelations. Got to leave it there for now. Up on a break. Howie Kurtz of Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 Fox News Channel. Howie, great to see you on TV yesterday, radio today. Thanks, Guy. Talk to you soon. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. I don't know about you. This show feels like it is flying for me today. We had Bill Barr for the first hour. If you missed that, GuyBensonShow.com. We'll put that up there. It'll be on the podcast, of course, for free every day. The whole show, GuyBensonShow.com. A lot of breaking news. On the Ukraine war front, two notes. 
over the weekend, President Zelensky went to a hospital to visit the wounded. Soldiers who had been wounded in the fight to award them various citations and medals. And just the amount of fortitude that that guy is demonstrating, not fleeing into exile and sort of being a government in exile or a leader in exile. He is there, sometimes in his office in Kiev. It is you, you think about how you would operate under different circumstances and. I'm not sure a lot of people would pass the Zelensky test. I'm not sure I would. It's amazing to watch. And speaking of Zelensky, it was announced this morning that he will address via Zoom or via satellite a joint session of our Congress here just across the road from where we're broadcasting. On Wednesday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, Zelensky will address Congress, a bipartisan session, bicameral session in the House chamber. I would imagine it will be packed And it will be televised, full coverage on Fox News. That is going to be quite something to watch. He did the Parliament in the U.K. the other day. Now he'll speak to the American Congress on Wednesday. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. That is our website. Podcast is always free. So here's a development from over the weekend. It broke at night, and I started seeing tweets about it, and we have now an update from the Associated Press. Iran has claimed responsibility, this happened yesterday, for a missile barrage that struck near a sprawling U.S. consulate complex in northern Iraq, claiming it was retaliation for an Israeli strike in Syria that killed two members of its Revolutionary Guard earlier this week. Iraq's foreign ministry on Sunday summoned Iran's ambassador to protest the attack, calling it a flagrant violation of the country's sovereignty. No injuries were reported in Sunday's attack in the city of Erbil, which marked a significant escalation between the United States and Iran. Hostility between the longtime foes has often played out in Iraq, whose government is allied with both countries. So there were missiles shot by Iranians into Iraq, right near our facility in Erbil. It's a big complex, a U.S. complex, and no one was hurt, thank goodness. What the Iranians are claiming is they were shooting at a secret Israeli facility. And I don't know if we have any great visibility on that claim at all. What we do know is this was a total violation of Iraqi sovereignty, And it very well could have put Americans at risk. Now, this would be, I would say, a pretty important news story under any circumstances. But it is particularly relevant given that we are currently, by we I mean the Biden administration, the U.S. administration, is currently actively, I would say, desperately seeking a deal with the Iranian regime. On its nuclear program. And we've been talking about this now for a week plus. And the intermediary talking to the Iranian regime on our behalf, because they won't talk to us directly. They call us the great Satan. Death to America is the chant regularly associated with the United States in Iran from the leadership, from the regime, from the mullahs. 
They won't talk to the United States directly. So we've been leaning on the Russians to do this negotiating on our behalf. And we're still doing that. In spite of everything that is happening in Ukraine. And I've made this point over and over again. I'm going to keep making it because it's just it, it blows my mind. That as the Biden administration says, oh, we're isolating Russia to an uh, extraordinary, unprecedented degree. They're an international pariah. But we're going to rely on their bureaucrats, their apparatchiks, their diplomats to try to reach an agreement with the Iranians. And we played you the soundbite of the lead negotiator for Russia basically bragging about how well the Iranians were doing in this negotiation, getting way more than anyone expected. He also thanked the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, for all of their help in this process. Meanwhile, our Congress, our representatives, have been left in the dark about this. The giveaways, the concessions from America are said to be so extraordinary, so outrageous that three different people serving on the Biden team left, left the process and walked away saying we can't be a party to this. And yet on it is gone. They've pressed forward. The good news, as we mentioned on Friday, is and there's rumors on Thursday confirmed on Friday. The Russians who are driving this boat, apparently. They're trying to press that advantage. They're trying to use this moment to get some verbiage in this nuclear deal that benefits them. I think they want to use Iran as a haven to get around some of the international sanctions that are really hurting their economy. So because of that, the whole negotiation has been put on pause. There was one diplomat who was quoted essentially saying that the Russians at the last minute threw a grenade into these talks. And I have to admit and confess, I'm kind of relieved that they did. Because a lot of the reporting was indicating that it was not necessarily a fully done deal, but it was almost there. Like dot a few I's, cross a few T's, this thing has been overwhelmingly agreed to, and it's imminent. Last week, there was talk from the American side and the Russian side that it would be a matter of days and there'd be an announcement. And I've been asking any member of Congress coming on this show who will listen, hey, what are you guys going to do? Is there a way to make sure that there's at least some way to review and vote on this? A dozen House Democrats have now signed a letter saying, We are not inclined to support this based on what we're hearing. Again, it's based on rumor and conjecture, right? speculation and leaks and that sort of thing, because the Kremlin knows what's in it. Right at the Politburo in Beijing, they know what's in it. The Biden administration knows what's in it. The Ayatollah knows what's in it, but our legislative branch does not. And we had Andy McCarthy explain why it is just insultingly wrong for Team Biden to claim, oh, well, this is just a resumption of the previous deal. It's not. The previous deal was bad enough, fatally flawed in my view. This is even worse. It is not just picking up where we left off. It's worse. In a number of really substantial ways, you can go back and listen to that interview if you want from last week with Andy McCarthy. So you've got the pause, the Russia-caused pause, 
And I said it's it's in some ways a benefit to those of us who oppose this thing moving forward because it seemed like that train was chugging toward the station in a very dangerous way. This at least gives an opportunity for those of us who are concerned about it gravely to draw more attention to the problem and to allow opposition to galvanize and opposition to build, including on the Democratic side of the aisle. It can't just be Republicans because the Democrats are in charge of Washington right now. I mean, the Democrats run the show. So you need some real meaningful opposition with teeth if this thing is going to get stopped or blocked on the U.S. side. And the Russians, by I think getting greedy and trying to overplay their hand, I think that they've done in a weird way, unintentionally, a bit of a service. Certainly to the United States. And now you've got this attack launched, admittedly, by Iran into Iraq, missiles landing right around one of our compounds, and they're claiming, oh, it's retaliation against Israel. This happened over the weekend. And yet top officials in the Biden administration are uh, still hell-bent, dead set on making this deal happen. And there's sort of like this funny trick. This is how it works. And that this was reminiscent of what we saw from the Obama administration back in 2014, 2015. No matter what Iran would do, that was in their mind, in their talking points, proof that they had to get the deal done. All right, so if Iran was making, let's say, a high-profile concession or if they were allegedly in compliance with something, they would say, see, look at this good behavior. And, you know, we're making progress here. We need to get this job done. We need to get this deal done. And then if Iran behaved terribly and went out there and was fomenting terrorism and financing terrorism, that they're number one, just a small little side note, they are the number one state sponsor of terrorism in the world, according to the State Department. Shouldn't be a minor side note. That seems like a pretty big one. So they would go and they would seek banned weapons, violating U.N. resolutions, whatever they would do. And the answer back would be, oh, see, this underscores the urgent need to strike a deal with Iran. It was always all roads always led back to this is why we have to do the deal. And we're seeing more of the same under this crew. And a lot of them are Obama retreads. So, for example, on Fox News Sunday yesterday, Brett Bayer was hosting. He had Wendy Sherman on, who is one of the, I believe, the assistant or the deputy Secretary of State in this administration. And Brett was asking her about this attack, and she expressed deep concerns. They're very, very concerned. Here it is, just cut 13. This was a very concerning attack, as General Keene pointed out. Uh, Indeed, uh, we do not believe that the consulate was actually the target of this uh, missile attack. Uh, We are very glad that our facilities are secure, that everybody's accounted for, uh, that no one has been hurt or killed. But all of that said, uh, this is great concern. Uh, There will indeed be a statement, I'm sure, uh, coming out uh, shortly, uh, as well as calls in. This was an attack on Iraq's sovereignty, among other things, and of great concern to all of us. All right, so we heard the word concern there three times. And they're saying they don't think the attack was aiming at us. It just happened to be that the missiles landed right by our compound, our diplomatic compound. 
and Iran saying, yeah, we did it, but it wasn't really aimed at you. And the Biden people are like, okay, but it's still very concerning. They said in that quote, there'll be a statement coming out shortly. Oh, okay. I'm sure everyone, the world is awaiting the statement from the State Department. So then Brett, our colleague, follows up being like, you know, this is yet another horrible thing, dangerous thing, provocative, escalatory thing that the Iranians have done. And still we're engaged in these negotiations with them through the Russians of all people at this moment. How does that make sense? And here's the way that they answer it. Here's Wendy Sherman, cut 15. If Iran has a nuclear weapon, its ability to project power into the Middle East and to deter us, our allies and partners, is enormous. So President Biden believes very strongly, as does Secretary Blinken, as do I, that we need to make sure that Iran never obtains a nuclear weapon. And then we also need to deal with their malign behavior in the region. Uh, But first, we've got to make sure that they cannot obtain a nuclear weapon. Okay, two problems with this. Problem number one, she said, well, we've got to do that first, and then we'll deal with the other malign stuff that they're doing in the region and in the world. That's not what the concessions reportedly are exclusively about here. We are conceding things to Iran, allegedly based on these leaks, in this new deal that they're trying to get hammered out. That is sanctions relief, money flowing again, designations lessened or reprieves given out on not just nuclear-related stuff, but on the terrorism, on the other malign actions. We are rewarding some of the malign actions, begging them to come back to the table, begging them to re-enter a deal. We're not just focusing on the nuclear piece. We're going soft on the other stuff, too. It's like, oh, well, we'll get to that eventually, will we? As she says, well, number one, if they get a nuclear weapon... Then they'll have so much more leverage. Okay, so then what? So how will we deal with these other malign behaviors then? How does that work out? Well, their answer would be, well, that's why we need the deal. That's the answer to everything. Always that's why we need the deal. Here's the biggest problem with that answer. The nuclear deal of Obama vintage and what is being discussed and revealed by sources to be in this one Biden vintage, does not, the deal does not prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. It just doesn't. Obama himself conceded that under the deal, if Iran perfectly abided by every single syllable of the deal, every letter, they would emerge at the end of the 10 to 15 year time horizon, which is now evaporated a lot of it right we're getting a lot closer to the to the end game here and apparently the deadlines are not being extended it's just a shorter weaker deal than the last one but even if they complied completely you'd get to the end of the restrictions which had sunset dates they would expire and iran would have all this technology all of this equipment and they would be a threshold nuclear state that moment with a nuclear program Basically, with the West's blessing, the Iran deal, they talk about it, they communicate about it as if it would prevent Iran from getting nukes. So we're willing to make all these other concessions because ultimately it stops them from getting nukes. It doesn't. At best, it slightly delays it. 
but it gives them this nuclear program that they can very clearly turn into a nuclear weapons program more, more overtly once the restrictions are over that the West has effectively signed on to and given the imprimatur to say, oh, yes, well, you know, we help them with the centrifuges and spinning and all that stuff. So we would have a very different debate about the efficacy and the wisdom of this deal if it indeed, in fact, stopped Iran cold from getting nukes. It doesn't. It doesn't come close to that. So that's why I think all of this other spin is total misdirection. Meanwhile, last point on this, 49 Senate Republicans, so all of them except one, we are efforting to find out who the one is. My guess might be Rand Paul. It is Rand Paul. Okay, so all the Senate Republicans except Rand Paul signed on to this letter. Quote, according to press reports, the Biden administration may soon conclude an agreement with Iran to provide substantial sanctions relief in exchange for merely short term limitations on Iran's nuclear program. By every indication, the Biden administration appears to have given away the store and they go through a list of what that means. The administration has thus far refused to comment. And has refused to commit to submit a new Iran deal to the Senate for ratification as a treaty, as per its constitutional obligation, or for review under statutory requirements that passed on a bipartisan basis in response to the 2015 deal. Additionally, despite earlier promises to the contrary, the administration has failed to adequately consult with Congress. Republicans, they write, made it clear. We would be willing and eager to support an Iran policy that completely blocks Iran's path to a nuclear weapons capability and does a whole host of other things. But that's not what this would do. The letter concludes, we strongly urge the administration, our Democrat colleagues and the international community to learn the lessons of the very recent past. A major agreement that does not have strong bipartisan support in Congress will not survive. Every Senate Republican but one signed on to that letter. I would like to know how many Senate Democrats would agree with that sentiment. They should be asked. This isn't some minor partisan squabble. This is a huge global and national security issue. And thanks to Russian overreach, believe it or not, there's a brief moment here to gather and maybe stop it which is why we're going to shine the spotlight on it as often as we can until there's a resolution. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Inflation is Vladimir Putin. Back on the Guy Benson Show, that's one of the excuses we're getting. And look, there's some truth to what's happening there with this massive disruption to the world economy, especially on energy. Yes, it's a contributing factor, but as many people have pointed out, including Jonathan Carl at ABC News over the weekend, inflation's been happening for more than a year, and it started right around when Joe Biden was elected president. His approval rating in two new polls, CBS, ABC, on inflation, deep underwater. He's at 70% disapproval on inflation. Blaming that on Vladimir Putin, that's not going to fly. Another hour, final hour, coming up. 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is our final hour on this Monday edition of the Guy Benson Show, a brand new broadcast week here on the program. Thank you for listening. Three to six Eastern every single weekday, GuyBensonShow.com for all your program needs, including the free podcast, which is on demand, no charge every day, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast. Heading to New York after today's show. I've got some TV stuff up there the next couple of days. We'll fill you in on uh, the radio side tomorrow. As we begin our happy hour, our final hour, I remind you that it is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is absolutely terrific. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can go order online. You can find out where they're sold in your area. They are expanding. We announced four new states a couple weeks ago, and I've been told that there are more to come. TheLongDrink.com, expanding by popular demand. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. With us now is Dr. Manny Alvarez, Fox News contributor and senior health analyst. Doctor, great to have you back on the show. Hey, Guy, how you doing? I am doing well. I want to start with a story that a few people sent me today with some exasperation. It's a piece in The Hill, but other people have reported this as well. The CEO at Pfizer now suggesting that fourth shots will be needed or necessary because of waning immunity after the booster shot, the third shot. Here's the thing, doctor. I'm extremely pro-vaccine. We've talked about that here. I've had two shots plus COVID. Uh, That hybrid immunity, I haven't gotten the booster for that reason. People start hearing about a booster, then a booster on top of the booster, and there's, I think, a fair amount of exasperation or just sort of reticence saying, is this just going to go on forever? And is the definition of fully vaccinated endlessly going to change? What is your overall thought on this? Should people start thinking of this differently? Should we start thinking of it more like a flu shot? How should people make these calculations and these decisions for themselves? Uh, listen, uh, think of the COVID vaccine as here to stay forever and ever. It'll be in my life. Yes, it will be there for <laughs> forever uh, because, it, you know, look, the coronavirus is not going to go anywhere. It's going to become a, a very prevalent endemic disease, just like the flu. It's going to be perhaps seasonal. And just like the narrative that we have for the flu, uh, they're going to recommend uh, that on an annual basis or thereabouts, uh, people uh, take uh, the, 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 the COVID vaccine again. Uh, and the argument that Pfizer is given uh, is that, uh, listen, even though the numbers have gone down in the United States, but around the world, uh, there's still hot pockets and we're opening up the borders and people are going to be traveling. So let's not lose sight that maybe this is not a bad idea to continue on the regimen of the booster. The mixed message, of course, is already starting from the federal government because the CDC hasn't even um, uh, you know, suggested anything like that. And, you know, because they're too busy, you know, with the 
mishmash of the Ukrainian war, and I understand that. But that's where people are going to get the mixed message coming forth, because Pfizer has submitted the data that, look, uh, when you give a shot uh, after six or seven months, you get a, a nice rebound in antibodies, and this is very protective, and it's going to minimize hospitalization. So from the scientific point of view, it makes all the sense in the world. But like everything else, you know, the flu shot has not become a routine uh, for the 100% of the population in the U.S. It has become well, it's not. It's not mandated either. It's not mandated, and I don't think the booster is going to be mandated. Maybe there will be pockets, you know, like we doctors, you know, we get mandated to take the booster shots, and there's a lot of rumbling about that when it's just going to stop. And maybe uh, frontline workers, whether it's the Army, the police officers, you know, any, anybody who's in the front lines of dealing with people at, at emergency services uh, may be mandated to take it. Uh, but it will become, again, the issue of, no, we don't want it. Yes, you're going to get fired, and it's going to be state uh uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, let's wait and see attitude. And that's where the confusion is going to come. Look, from a practical point of view, uh, uh, from a danger point of view, there's really none. Uh, is it indicated in people that are chronically vulnerable? And, you know, remember, one third of the American population has some sort of debilitating chronic disease, whether it's diabetes or heart disease or severe pulmonary disease. That's, that's you know, those demographics are not changing anytime soon. So, you know, for the vulnerable, it's something to consider, just like the flu shot, and they're very loyal to the flu shot. For the rest of the population, like you, you know, happy and peppy and bursting with love like you are and healthy, <laughs> um, you know, you just, uh, you know, you just got to take it a day at a time and you know, it's good that you got your basic shots and, it's, you know, and, and, you know, that you recover from your uh, coronavirus infection. Um, and I think you should be OK. But it, 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 but again, the, the, the message is that, you know, you have a pharmaceutical company and people are going to say, ah, oh, they want to make a, another 20 billion dollars. Here we go again. This is a nice, you know, that's like the tick in the ear for doctors, um, uh, you know, and, and that's where the population is going to get mixed messages and you're going to have a lot. Yeah, of I, I think the messaging should be a lot better. I'm not sure if it's wise for the CEOs of these big companies to be the ones absolutely. spouting off about I, this. Not, right, absolutely not. But, you know, listen, they, they, they have a business to run and, and I'm sure that he's coming from a good place. Uh, but, you know, it's, 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 the, it's the nature of times. You know, there's no distrust in anything, especially for pharmaceutical companies. Meanwhile, there are other stories that, you know, you debate how much, if any, airtime do you want to devote? So, you know, for example, former President Barack Obama announced that he has COVID. And he said it's been a scratchy throat. That's it. He's boosted. He's fully vaxxed, all the things. It's very mild. He's feeling fine. A couple Democratic members of Congress uh, have also announced that they're positive in the last few days. Symptoms are mild. I know we're kind of way past the point of breathlessly reporting breakthrough cases or anything like that. But some people are like, oh, you know, they were just sort of still shocked or shaken that someone like Obama could get it. I, I don't understand that mentality. Anyone can get it. It's extremely transmissible. The whole point of the vaccines at this point is to keep you out of the hospital and certainly alive, as opposed to you know, contracting it in any way, shape or form, which does seem largely unavoidable for many, many people. Then there's also this whole story. I know The New York Times written about it and others. A uh, another new variant or a subvariant, the stealth Omicron is what I've heard it called, or BA two, and you're seeing huge, uh, you know, spikes in cases in certain parts of the 
world, including in countries, for example, in Asia, areas in Asia where they have very strict rules on masking and everything, uh, you know, is this the type of thing where we should pay attention to reports about new variants or are the new variants inevitable and not necessarily worse? And it's not really a huge news story when an, when another one is identified or named or something like that. Listen, uh, you know, all of this information now has become comical to me. Um, you know, the American public, uh, you know, now, you know, you go on, online on the Internet and, uh, you know, with a lot of due respect to, to your listeners, they all want to be scientific experts on the basis of what they read online. And they go to the doctor and they tell the doctor what their symptoms are and what disease they have, or what treatment they should get. I, I get all of that. But the bottom line is they're not doctors. And, and, you know, when you read in the media, you know, look, look the media is the media. Uh, you're in that business. Uh, I'm in that business. I understand it. But we have to stop, you know. Uh, the, the sensationalism of, oh, the president, the former president, tested positive for COVID. So what? He's a, yeah. he's a healthy guy. He, you know, uh, you know, it made, but he has a name. You know, he, that sells newspapers. It, it's, you know, it gets eyeballs and on, on clicks. I, I get all of that. But it really has no relevance to the American public. What the American public has to do is, look, we got a vaccine. A lot of people, 60, 70 percent of the American population got the, the, the vaccine. Hundreds of million people got COVID. They got natural immunity. Uh, the numbers are down minimal. We hardly have any patients, especially in the Northeast, in hospitals whatsoever. Um, you're still going to get the isolated one or two patients that are going to be very critically ill because they never got the vaccine or they have underlying medical conditions. But that's it. That is it. Okay, and we're going to have lots of variants. Then, you know, we already have had like three or four or five variants already, but uh, Omicron took popularity. It took over the world, especially in the United States. It became very popular. The, word, the name Omicron became a, a normal uh, word for American uh, 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 lexicon. I get, right. the, I get the whole thing. But the household we name, we, Omicron. We've got we to move on. And with Omicron being as mild, thank goodness, as it is, I saw a report that for the first time in two years in the U.K. now, the flu is more deadly than COVID. And that's because of the more mild variant out there. And also because so many people have various levels of immunity from shots and from natural immunity. I mean, that seems to be the way that we just deal with this in our lives. And we sort of accept it as as part of the risk factor in our lives and it's endemic and we move on is is when it becomes more like the flu. And at least in the UK recently, it's become slightly less deadly than the flu. Right. I mean, that is that is something that is a reality. Right. And I don't think that we should be afraid of that or shy away from that. And maybe, you know, the, the flu has a new variant every year. That's why there is a flu shot. Maybe that's why we should take some of the emphasis away from new variant. That's that is normal for influenza every single year, every single season in this country. I mean, it, does that sound fair to you? I, I 100% fair. Look, what I tell a lot of my friends is, you know, I tell everybody to tape the State of the Union. And when they feel fearful about COVID, just turn it on for five minutes. You see all those, you see the seat of government hugging and kissing and, 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 and just having a merry old time. And that's the, the seat of the U.S. government, right? So you look at that picture Mm-hmm. then it's okay for you to go to 7-Elevens and get a soda without a mask. 
There's a CDC report, and this is my last question. Social isolation has been linked to poor health outcomes. And again, this is not necessarily shocking news. This is something that some folks have been screaming about for two years. But a recent report has found that social isolation is associated with about a 50 percent increased risk of dementia, 29 percent increased risk of heart disease, 32 percent increased risk of stroke. And, you know, these are very serious physical maladies, diseases, increased risk that can really be harmful to people as a result of some of the covid mitigation policies that were implemented uh, in this country and around the world for a long period of time. I think we're just scratching the surface of the after effects of the restrictions and the so-called mitigation. I just hope, doctor, that as we learn more about these harms to people, whether it's children or in this case, more elderly people who were isolated and alone and depressed and scared and maybe not going for other medical appointments for various reasons because of all the hype around COVID, which is not to say COVID was not very, very serious. We're getting up on a million deaths in this country alone. I totally get that. But in some ways, some of the solutions appear to be worse in some cases than the disease. I just hope that we never go back to something like we've just experienced, especially for that last or I should say first year, year and a half. There are a lot of really, really negative health consequences here. No, uh, listen, uh, I, 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 I call it the COVID mental health epidemic. That's what we have right now. Everything that you said about uh, isolation and uh, the relationship, especially for people that are older, when it comes to dementia and cognitive, uh, you know, slowness and and uh, and things of this sort, it is a hundred percent true. This is you know nothing new from a scientific point of view. This this has been already described since the seventies. Uh, but there's a there's an epidemic of mental health uh, in this country, and it's COVID related. It's cultural related it's religiously related uh we have been uh, we as american are more isolated emotionally um you know in our souls more than ever before and the covid just put the, the you know put it over the top and you could see the numbers of mental health you could see the the amount of drugs that are being utilized, the people that are overdosing, just looking for some sort of, you know, comfort on the basis of drugs and everything. And if you look at the numbers of drugs coming into this country, uh, it, it, it has quadrupled, if anything, from, from uh, years previous to that. So we yep. are in a bad a... place. Uh, we're in a bad place. And certainly we don't have the resources because the federal government has never uh, uh, really paid good attention to mental health. We don't have mental health hospitals, mental health clinics. You know, they throw money every time they 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 say, okay. Well, and and now and now that now the crisis that already existed and, and predated the pandemic is really acute and much more widespread And, you know, I get that COVID is extremely serious. We have treated it as such on this program. But there are ripple effects from the uh, public policy to mitigate COVID. And those ripple effects are also extremely serious as we are learning more and more with each passing day. Dr. Manny Alvarez, Fox News contributor, senior health analyst. 
here on the Guy Benson Show. Doctor, always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. We will take a break. We will be right back. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. So yesterday you had spring training starting back up, baseball's back, selection Sunday for the NCAA tournament, and March Madness very much in full swing. And that's kind of the focus of the sports world until out comes a statement, out comes a tweet. Tom Brady, who retired from football, what, like, a month and change ago? I think I read it was 40 days. He's unretired. There were all these tributes. We talked about it here, the greatest of all time, the legacy, so on and so forth. Well, he said there's unfinished business. He wants to play. He's like, I'm not done yet. I'm realizing upon further review that there's more that I want to get done here. So he's going back to the Bucks in Tampa for another season. And we'll probably talk more about this later in the week. It's huge news in the sports world. But a story that was making the rounds yesterday was, did you see someone paid over 500 grand for the football of what was believed to be Tom Brady's final touchdown pass of his career? Someone dropped half a million on that. And it will now very likely not be the last touchdown pass of Tom Brady's career because he's still in good shape and he was a very high-performing quarterback last year. But that person, I mean, that, that football is now worth a f- tiny fraction of it. That person has to be very, very unhappy with that choice. Half a million dollars for basically a very expensive pump fake from Tom Brady. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Coming back after this short break. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. And earlier today for our first hour, we were privileged to welcome in studio the former Attorney General of the United States, Bill Barr, who's out with a new book that I read in its entirety. It was really good. One damn thing after another. And, boy, we talked about one damn thing after another for the first hour of today's program. Really good conversation. Here's a taste of it. If you missed it, have a listen. There is sort of a a fitness for office question, and some of the stuff that you write, really tough stuff about the way that he behaved in his psychology, people have wondered, how is that not disqualifying in your mind, having been on the inside? How would you answer that question? Why is that stuff in your mind, not disqualifying? Well, he, he as I've said, his, his, some of his traits that are bad, like his impulsiveness, also had a good side to them. And it, it added to the decisiveness and the, and the dynamism of the administration. And as long as there were people around cabinet secretaries and White House staff who could you know, prevent him from you know, taking things too far or, or going off in some cockamamie direction, things were pretty much on track. And up until the election, I was 
fairly satisfied with the record. I thought it was a successful administration. In well, even when you resigned in your letter, yes. you listed accomplishments, and he told you, this is the best list of accomplishments that I've seen right. summarized. And yeah. you're like, under your breath, maybe we should have run on this and not all this other craziness. Oh, right. Uh, and uh, I, I think that he was shocked by he, – he, he, persuaded himself that he was going to win at the end because of the size of the crowds. I don't know what was going on in his mind, but you know there were people who were very forcefully uh, presenting the idea that he had uh, that you know there had been fraud. And I think that he made a, a shameful mistake, which is to encourage this mob to go up to Capitol Hill in order – with this crazy idea that it could be turned around somehow. Well, he January. believed that he had won. At least for a while, you said he believed that he was going to serve another term. That's that what he, he – that's how he appeared to me. I mean I, that yeah, seems yeah. like a, a disconnect from the reality though. Well, yeah. I don't know what was going on, You know whether, whether – uh, you know, he really believed it or not. I really can't say. But uh, there were a lot of people telling him that and that it was stolen. And, and uh, you know, he persuaded himself that there was some opportunity to try to turn that around. I, if, if, and, and as I said, I will support somebody else for the nomination and, and do what I can because I think it's a great opportunity for the Republican Party to really have a transforming election. But if he's the nominee, I, it, it's hard for me to conceive that I would not vote for the Republican nominee uh, if it meant – if the alternative was a, was a Democrat that was under the control of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think uh, I'd weigh all the r relative risks and it would be uh, a choice between two very <laughs> unsatisfactory options. Uh, but I would – in the case of uh, Trump – uh, in another term, I would have to count ultimately on the people who were around him in the cabinet uh, and on the staff to uh, make sure that he stays on track. No round three for you? No way. At Maine Justice? <laughs> no way. <laughs> One of the people that comes up in the book a number of times, another cabinet secretary under President Trump that you seem to have a great amount of respect and affection for is someone that I know a little bit as well, Secretary Pompeo. Yes. There's no real secret that he is – thinking about running for president. Um, he has not ruled out even challenging President Trump in a primary potentially. Is he someone that you could envision supporting in a Republican primary for president? Yes, I've had a long associate – not a long, but I mean I've uh, – when he was director of the CIA, I was on his external advisory board and then he was a colleague in the cabinet. and I have tremendous respect for him and given the dangers around the world – you know, he'd be a very formidable candidate for president and, and someone who I think would make a great president. And I think that's one of the things that I'm uh, concerned about with Trump is that uh, we have a great uh, stable of excellent people that could be president. Uh, Pompeo is one, but there are others too, senators and governors and so forth. And it's time to give one of them a chance. Very quickly before this break. There's so much drama. There's so much rancor. There is also a lot of success in the Trump administration. On balance, looking back, you didn't want the job. You finally decided that you would accept the job. Are you glad that you did? I, I wouldn't say I, I, I was glad that I did. It's always an honor to serve the country, and I'm glad in that respect. Uh, Do you regret taking the job? No, I don't regret taking the job. Uh, I, I was very disappointed because I think the president, because uh, 
uh, of his inability to control himself uh, uh, blew the election. He could have won that election and he didn't and a lot was riding on it. Uh, but I also – when I look back, we accomplished a lot and I had the opportunity of uh, working with some fantastic people at the department and in the administration and I don't regret that experience. For that entire interview, go to GuyBensonShow.com. It's up there at our website. We're going to try to get it up on the YouTube site as well. There's also, of course, the podcast, the full show every day for free on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a dramatic weekend for producer Christine. Moving is never easy. How did it go in her household? We'll get the scoop and maybe do some couples therapy right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday. It's the Guy Benson Show from D.C. Glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern. Podcast is always free. Should you miss any of the live program, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcast. Busy broadcast week ahead on the TV side. We'll bring you some of those details tomorrow from New York. Speaking of the New York area, at least, producer Christine has moved. She has packed up her belongings at Eyesore Lane, which might actually get a bit of a facelift now that all of her inflatables are gone, and she's moved into an apartment And the closing on the house is tomorrow. This is all very exciting. However, Christine, when I asked you about this today, your reaction was not one of happiness or relief or Mm. looking forward to the future. It was more about trying to recenter yourself due to some strife, I guess, on the home front because moves can be stressful. They can strain relationships. Is everything okay? Mm. Well, let's just say I was happy, really happy to come to work today. So that should just say it all, don't you think? Wait, but are you are you not happy to come to work? Uh, listen, most days I, to come I, see your best friends. <laughs> I love coming to work, but you know what I'm saying? Like people don't normally like get up on a Monday and going, "Woohoo! I'm about to commute to New York City," and you know, <laughs> try to make it safe to my office and. You know, work all day and get back. Like, usually it's like, oh, boy. You know, I I was very happy to, I think, Bobby. You actually I- strike me as the type of person who is that way. You pop out of bed, not pre-dawn, like War Wyatt. I mean, can you imagine his wake-up time, by the way, during War Wyatt era? It's, it's- like, he's up, he's up at 4.30 on a normal day, like on <laughs> vacation to relax on a Sunday. He's up at 4.30 on a constitutional to go pick up. A paper copy of the Wall Street Journal at a train station, I would imagine. For some reason, I think that makes sense. And a cup of coffee. And War Wyatt, I mean, I'm not sure he sleeps. I think he sits on his phone and personally is responsible for the ticker at the bottom of the screen. 24-7. He's like, you give that to me. I'm going to do it. I don't know why I went off on that tangent. Oh, because I can picture you getting up a little bit later at like 6.30 a.m. and getting a coffee, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, excited for the work week, Physically skipping to the bus, all excited, bursting onto the scene at Fox News up there in New York, calling out to all of your friends who strangely look the other way or disappear through doors or into elevators, 
and just ready to go get them for the week. That's I mean, that's the vibe I get. Yeah, you're not that far off. I do, you know, to have my people <laughs> I always talk to, you know, I'm always yeah, yeah, you're not that far off. But it, it was a rough weekend, uh, not as smooth or as much fun as I thought it would be. Bobby and I definitely. Well, moves even, are not fun. I thought it was going to be easy and fun. I really did. Mm-mm. No. Why would you think that? Um, Just because we're like, it's a new chapter in our life and we're excited and, you know, we're not moving a lot of our furniture. And But boy, um, I dropped the ball on a couple of things that really didn't start the Saturday off so great. And oh, is that an admission? Did I just hear an admission? Yeah, I mean, I, guilt, apparently perhaps? you need some sort of certificate of insurance in order to move furniture into an apartment building. Because you can't just, like, go in there. Because what if, like, the movers, you know, dent something? or Stuff d- up the walls. Yeah, I didn't know something. that. Nobody told me mm. that. And apparently it was in the lease and I should have read it. But what, the lease is, like, how many pages? I'm not going to read the whole entire thing. Who reads the whole thing? Well, I mean, you're you're at least conceding some culpability here so there were some snags it sounds like and bobby was annoyed and yeah, this it, ratcheted up the pressure that already existed because of the nature of this life event moving is very stressful borderline traumatic yeah and by by last night we were just both done so i i went back cuz we still have the house i went back to the house and i just put my earphones on and i don't i don't think i ever told you did you, you sleep on the floor no, just, we have a bed. Just an empty house, a total empty <laughs> no, house. No, it's not. Because... And cookie <laughs> no. in the middle of the living room with a giant box of mama's juice. I did get a box of wine. I'm not kidding. So you are right in that. I did get the box of wine because <laughs> all the bottles of wine are, have been moved. So I just went and got a box. I'm like, honestly, just like I just need a solo cup and the spigot and I'm fine for the weekend. Did your uh, psychic warn you that this would be so difficult? Because she got the month wrong of your move, by the way. Mm. Did she warn that this might be coming down the pike or maybe she didn't have the opportunity because you haven't paid her even more money to make No, up. she didn't. But what I did do to center myself is a few years ago, I um, did four sessions of hypnosis. And so oh boy. Um, during those hypnosis things, I found my angel or my spirit guide. His name is George. So, like, I put the hypnosis tapes because she recorded it. So I put those Wait, on and I just, like, laid like down. Like the angel from It's a Wonderful Life? Well, it's just, you can say spirit guide. I say angel, but, like, George is my person. So, Dan, I don't know why Who you're is, laughing. Why is Dan laughing? Is, because, I mean, I, the audience knows. The audience knows. So, I'm sorry, who is George? George is my angel. Um, mm. And my, how did you meet him? It, it, when I was hypnotized. He came yeah. to me, so he's like my person. I think either he uh-huh. was my past life husband or um, someone very influential in my life. He, 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 When I see him in my hypnosis, he's like from the 70s, so it's like kind of hippie. Um, I have like a Wait, whole picture of him in my mind. Look, I am not an expert at all on hypnosis, but I was unaware that you have visions, right? I thought that you were still yourself, but you would just admit to certain things. I didn't realize that you would see supernatural beings. And this is a stranger? You're saying this person was a stranger? Well, I, 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 in my hypnosis, I knew him. Like, you know, I was flying at one point and like George was cheering me on. This is real, too. I don't, I tried to explain this to Bobby in the car ride home that day and he just like, he's just like, whatever. I can't believe I'm paying now, this amount of money for this. Just, just to confirm, this was 
you were hypnotized. Yes, I'm hypnotized. You were not given hallucinogenic no. drugs. No, she was doing a sound. Where you're flying and your special angel spirit, George, was cheering you on. And I, this it sounds was during like, a sound I don't know, bath. an acid trip? It was during a sound bath, too. Like, she plays things, mm. you know, like the bowl and everything. But anyway, George is I don't know what any me... of that just meant, what you just said. Oh, the bowl and the sound bath. Yes, mm-hmm. of course. Please go on. So George gives me sometimes, like, just calmness that I need. So I'm not really sure who he is in my life, but I just know who he is. That's why, don't you remember when I wanted to buy a racehorse this summer with my sister? Remember? I do. And I wanted to name the horse George after my— yeah, We didn't want to let you anywhere near anything that resembled a horse for obvious reasons, as the long-term listeners know— but we don't have to get into that. Yeah, but remember I wanted to name him George, and you said usually a horse, a racehorse is not named just George? Yeah. Yeah, that's Actually, why. Like a middle-aged man. <laughs> Dan, So, So I hang on, so you summoned, you summoned George yes. this weekend? Is yes. that what happened? Yeah, okay. I put the How tapes on. Did, did I he felt, help? Yeah, I felt calmer, and I felt like I was ready to, like, to tackle more and not rip my husband's head off, because that's what I really wanted to do. Mm. But I'm well, calm I now. would much rather I would much rather you talk to an imaginary friend it, no. than commit homicide, because I mean War Wyatt has really made a lot of strides. I'm not sure if he's ready yet to transition into the executive producer role just yet, and so well, we why? can't have you arrested for a felony. You, yeah. I mean, that'd really be some Anna Delvey <laughs> sort of channeling oh, there. Oh, so this is for of, the best. Speaking of very quickly, um, I have to shelve the whole Anna Delvey thing. That. Oh, your, your whole accent? Yeah. One of my friends even texted you. She's like, your accent is pretty good. Yes. Um, for, uh, my daughter really thought it was very funny, and then I overheard she was playing a game of Monopoly with two of her friends, and she had more money, and then she told them they were all puh. So, um, oh, like that they, they looked poor? Yeah, which is one of the Okay. So you're now, you're now retiring that character? I think I have to. Have you told her about George? Yes, yes, she was in the car the day I came out of the hypnosis when I told Bobby. And she, her and Bobby, you know, just laugh at mommy, just like they always do. <laughs> but that's another day, another subject. And I would imagine Bobby would have a very different take on all of this. Well, Bobby's take is always how much did this cost me, you know? So $400 a session doesn't make Bobby happy. Well, I'm talking about the move and oh, you wanting to rip Oh, his I thought we were off. still on the hypnosis. <laughs> Well, it all kind of plays into the same theme, honestly, but I would imagine that this was more difficult and more expensive than he was hoping or anticipating. So he would probably say your frustration with him was maybe unfounded or not as justifiable, perhaps, as what he might be feeling. Yeah, no, I I don't. I mean, besides that one mistake, I don't think I did anything wrong. Actually, I felt like I was the head leader of the move. I felt like I was the one in charge, not him. And that's not usually how it goes. Um, He obviously feels differently. So I don't know. Go talk to him. So you're fully moved in, though. The the apartment is now where you will sleep tonight, I hope and imagine. Um, not we'll a, see. Not a Motel Six or <laughs> we'll something. We'll see how the two of us are doing when I get home. <laughs> we have okay, the well. house for one more night. We have to be out by noon tomorrow, so we'll see. Well, I'm rooting for peace to come to our time in this household. A truce. You guys can make up. Have exciting times with the new apartment and all the furniture starting to arrive and all of that. And if you ever need someone to intercede and help, I'm sure George will be ready at your beck and call. Apparently, just put on the tapes. And what, would you, what did you call it? The, the hand bowl? 
The water the sound bowl, bath. something like sound, the sound bath. bath. There, there, the sound bath. Just, just conjure the sound bath, and George will roll in. Uh, well, that is. Look, it's stressful. No matter who you are, no matter how you're doing it, even if you have hired professionals who take care of every single thing, it is still a stressful process. So this too shall pass. Congrats on the new spot to you and Bobby and Megan and even Rosie. And I would also add George, yet another member of this family that we hadn't met yet. And another layer of the onion is peeled back once again on a home stretch about producer Christine, whom I will see tomorrow and Wednesday up in New York doing the show from the Big Apple. I've got some TV responsibilities upcoming. And we will tell you all about them right here tomorrow, same time, same place, on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.